We're going to be talking about serving the Lord today. That's what our topic is. This is this is about our service to the Lord. And as we were preparing for this, as I was preparing for this Sunday, initially what I was calling this Sunday was Volunteer Sunday. And uh, and so as I started thinking about our volunteers, what I wanted to do was just kind of encourage uh, those who are volunteering. You know, we're always in a need for more and more of of volunteering, but we're also really uh, always at risk of people who are volunteering feeling, feeling like, you know, holy cow, I'm exhausted, you know, I'm running as so as to win, but I'm getting exhausted in the race, you know, and, uh, and I just wanted to, to give a, a week toward that where we just talk about something having to do with that, you know, and so I, I started uh, working through Romans chapter 12, which seems to be kind of the definitional spot where it talks about us serving the Lord, and as I was, as I was working through that, I started to realize, I don't think volunteer is a good word for this. It's just not the right word. We use volunteer all the time. If you're on PFC Net and you're a part of a group, you get a volunteer reminder. You know, and this morning we said we need volunteers for, for uh, VBS. And if you want to help out with VBS, you can sign up to be a volunteer. And we use the word volunteer. But there was something as I was thinking and praying and studying the passage that was just abrasive to me. There was kind of a check in me as I was reading the word that I'm like, I don't know if that's the right word to use. And we're not going to change the way PFC networks or, you know, we're not banning the word volunteer from Parker Ford or anything. But it just didn't, it didn't capture what it was that I was seeing when I was studying the scriptures in preparation for this. It didn't quite capture it. So we changed this. It's not volunteer Sunday. This is a Sunday of service. This is our service, okay? And uh, this today is is we're going to be going through Romans chapter 12, the first five verses, just describing how we serve God and how we worship as we serve God. Now, when you look at Romans chapter 12, there's one thing that's really important as we look at it, and that's that we understand Romans. This is not a study in Romans. This is a topical message today on service. But we've got to know something about Romans in order to understand this text, okay? And that's that the first 11 chapters of Romans, the whole first 11 chapters are completely different than the rest of the book. Their objective is very different. The first 11 chapters tell us about how God makes us new, how God makes us righteous, how God refines us, redeems us, saves us, and brings us back into a relationship with Him. The first 11 chapters are all about what Jesus has done and how that changes the whole game, and it brings us back into a relationship with Him. Amen? It's awesome. Now, it's pretty technical uh, it's pretty technical language. If you've read Romans, you know, it's very technical. It's very theological. It's, it's, it's all these nuances in there. It's like reading a legal document about how two people found each other. You know, it's like we're talking about a relationship, but it's very technical language. And he was talking to the Romans. He wasn't, he wasn't talking to the people of Israel. He was talking to Romans. And some of them were Jews, some of them were not. But he was talking to a Roman world. And these are people who build streets and they build buildings and they build columns. And they're like, so how does it work? And so he's telling them how it works. Romans Road, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. Each man has gone their own way. It's been, there's unrighteousness. We've separated ourselves from God. Romans 6.23, the wages of that sin is death because as we've separated ourselves from God and gone our own way, 
we've detached, we've unplugged ourselves from the source of life. So therefore, there is no life anymore. There's only death. However, the grace of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So somehow, through Jesus, there's this way to have eternal life. Romans 5 tells us exactly how. It says, how does that work? God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were unrepentant, while we were headed the other direction, while we were pulling the plug on our relationship with God, Christ died for us. You know, that's when Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then you, you fast forward to chapter 10. And chapter 10 says, uh, if you will believe, uh, if you will, yeah, how's it go? If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So if I confess with my mouth, with my mouth, Jesus is God. He is the Lord. And, and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead and I am raised with him. My, I am now dead to sin and alive in Christ. That's Romans road to salvation. Okay. That's, that's us kind of technically describing how we enter into a relationship with God. And then like the beauty of it all is found in chapter eight, where it says there's no, there is now therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors in him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither height nor depth, you know, and it's just this like beautiful passage describing this, us entering this relationship and what is available to us now because of what it is that Christ done. That's the first 11 chapters in a nutshell, okay? A technical language. But something happens there. And Paul makes a huge switch now. And he's no longer talking about how we enter into a relationship with God. Now he's talking about what this new life actually looks like and what it requires of us to experience it. If we want to enter into this relationship with God and if we want to experience this new life in Christ... What is it all about? What does it look like? And he starts to describe it. So here's the reason I tell you all of that is because if we read this passage, it's kind of like if you went and spoke to some young single guy who had a lot going for him and he was a little bit of a Casanova, you know, or something, you know, who had his eyes wide open and was still interested in figuring out all the fun things of life or whatever. And you started talking to him about the joys of married life. You know, and you start telling him, this is what it looks like in married life. You help out with the dishes and you help cook the meal. And, you know, this is not going to sound like fun stuff to him. You know, he's going to be like, ah, this is a ball and chain, you know, and that's what he's going to feel. However, if you talk to someone who has given their life to another person, and it started to experience the beauty of a deep relationship that's far better than any of the surface stuff that they've experienced before. Now, giving them a roadmap as to how to get the best out of that relationship, well, now I have the motivation. I'm fully devoted, you know? I'm fully devoted. As we were singing here, Michael was singing at the end, we're fully devoted to you. You know, and, and, and if we are fully devoted, if we're all in with God, if we have given ourselves over to him, well, then we need to know how do we get this thing to work? You know, if I'm married, how do we get this thing to work so that we enjoy ourselves in it? You know, and so that's for the person who's given their life to Christ. This stuff makes a lot of sense. If we haven't given our life to Christ and you fast forward all the way to chapter 12, it's a little scary. It's a little scary because it looks like a lot that God's requiring of us or something. It feels like a lot of sacrifice, you know, but that's, it's, it's, a, it's no sacrifice at all 
if we have the love of God pouring into our lives, we just want more and more of it. I mean, we're addicted to it. We're like junkies for the love of God. You know, like we really, I really want it. I mean, we all are addicted to all sorts of stuff in our life, you know. But when we give ourselves fully to God, we start saying, there's nothing better than this. Give me the roadmap for what does it look like life in Christ, you know. And so that's where Romans 12 picks up. It's done telling us about how it works and how we get into relationship with Christ. That's assumed now we're moving forward. If you've never entered into a relationship with Christ, if you've never experienced walking, stepping across the line and entering into that, you need to talk to one of us. You know, you need to talk to one of the elders, one of the pastors. You need to come and we need to walk you through the gospel and, and show you. I mean, this is life here. This is the beauty of life is coming into relationship with Jesus. This is what it's all about. This is where we find meaning and depth and life. That's, that's it. So please come and talk to us if you haven't done that. This message, the rest of this message, though, will not be for you if you haven't stepped across. If you have stepped across, the rest of this is what does it look like for us now? What's life look like? And, and what does it look like particularly when it comes to serving the Lord? Like we have, we have jobs to do. We have a created destiny, okay? And what's that all about? So it picks up in chapter 12 and uh, in verse 1. And I'm not going to have you stand in honor of God's word today because it's going to take me a little time. I'm breaking it down piece by piece and walking us through it. And I don't want you standing for the next 15 minutes because I'm going to lose you if you do. Okay, so... Therefore, what do, you, what do you ask yourself every time you see therefore in the scripture? What's it there for? All right, every time you see the word therefore, you have to say, what is it there for? Because it's linking us to something else. Fortunately, there's a cheat in this one because even after it says therefore, it tells us what it was saying therefore about. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Okay, so what it's saying here is, and, and we're going to stop and look at that phrase right there. First of all, Paul's saying, in view of chapters 1 to 11, the mercy of God, the redemption of Jesus, Him bringing us new life, Him bringing us into the kingdom, in view of that huge act of grace, that huge act of mercy, His forgiveness of our sins, I urge you. Now, urge is an interesting word. He doesn't say, I command you, because this isn't a command. This is a choice. We still have choice here. This is not Him saying, you have to do this, because that's not what this is all about anymore. Once we enter into a relationship with God, this is not about what we have to do. This is what we get to do, okay? This is what we're allowed to do now. This is what we are privileged to do. So he's not saying, I command you, but neither is he saying, I want to suggest to you. Or like, you know, it's not a recommendation. He's like, I strongly urge you. Like, you got to check it out, guys. You really got to experience this. You're sitting on a Ferrari. Take it to the Audubon and see what it's got, you know? Like, that's kind of where he's at. I'm telling you, you don't know what this thing has until you've done this. He's urging us. So what is it that he's urging us to do? Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So I have to offer my body as a living sacrifice. Okay, that's a little weird, isn't it? And doesn't that just just stop all the like religious language for a second? And like all of our all of everything we learned in Sunday school, if you grew up in Sunday school, put that aside and just hear that phrase. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. It's a little weird. Okay? And uh, so in order to explain it, let's talk about reincarnation. How many of you believe in reincarnation? Don't raise your hand, please. This is kind of the inverse. This is kind of the opposite of reincarnation. 
reincarnation says that when I die, my body crumbles, but then my spirit is eventually regenerated in some other body, right? And so my spirit remains alive. I'm part of this big life force or something. And my body kind of, my spirit finds another body, a host for another body based on my karma, based on what I've done. And, and it finds another host body. And, and then that is where I'm, I'm reborn. My spirit's reborn. Very, very different here. Very different thought is that my spirit was dead. Internally, there was no spirit. It was dead. But my spirit is regenerated because there's a new spirit that lives in me. What spirit is that? The Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus. So Jesus arises from the dead, and when he rises, he will also rise in me. And so now I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Okay? So Jesus in this is... Please don't technically quote me on this. And I realize we record these and put them on the internet. So disclaimer, this isn't a theological statement. But Jesus is kind of like reincarnated in us. Okay? That's kind of how this works. It's like instead of us being reincarnated, what happens is the spirit of Jesus is alive after he comes up out of the grave and he comes and dwells in us. And I was dead and I was vacant. I was just a shell. All that was left was a body that was still still here on earth, decaying, waiting to die as I was already in death and it was just a time until it worked itself out and there was nothing left until Jesus rose from the dead and he comes and he indwells me And now all of a sudden, he wants to bring life to my mortal body, the scriptures say. That he wants my body to be the host of his spirit. That's why it says our bodies are temple of the living God. That's what we are. We're the host of the living spirit of Jesus within us. That's an awesome thing. That's an incredible thought. That inside of us right now, in view of God's mercy, that He has entered into our lives and that the living God, the creator of the universe, dwells inside of my body. Grapple with that. Wrestle with that. And He says, in view of that, I urge you, brothers and sisters, give your whole self, give your entire body, put it on an altar For the love of God and in view of all of His mercy, I urge you, give your lives, give your bodies as living sacrifices to Jesus. Bring your body in line with the Spirit of Jesus. Because the only reason you're alive, the only reason there's a lamp in your body is because it's the Spirit of Jesus. So no longer hold on to your body as if it's your own. Dedicate it entirely to Jesus so this thing can function the way it's meant to, so you can experience the fullness of the life that God has designed for you. Wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Now, we still have to deal with the fact that this is a sacrifice. And sacrifice is weird because sacrifice typically in religious circles kind of means like there's an angry God and we have to satisfy the angry God by killing something in order to pay for the sin of it so that the angry God's not mad at me anymore. And then, you know, my crops will grow or whatever it is, you know. And so does that mean that we're doing this in order to appease the anger of God? Clearly from this text, we're not. But here, let's rewind a little bit and talk about sacrifice in the scripture. See, this is how it works. You remember long before Israel inhabited the land of Israel, the promised land, that there was this guy, Abraham, who was called to leave Ur. And he leaves Ur, his hometown, and he takes his family, and he's promised that he's going to have this great nation and that it's going to exist in this new land. 
And so you know the story. In old age, God miraculously gives them this son, Isaac, and he takes them to go to this new land that we now call Israel, Palestine, all of that, you know. And we go over, to, he goes over to this land, and there are people who live there, Canaanites and that type of thing, who live there, and, and they, they worship false gods. And, uh, and, but when he gets there, God's saying, this son who I'm giving you, you're going to have a nation, and, and this is the place where you're going to be. Now, I want you to take that son, and I want you to put him on an altar, and I want you to sacrifice him. And what's interesting is that God, it, the God who I know and interact with, that just seems kind of like out of character. Um, you know, where it's like, yeah, I, I have a hard time being okay with that, you know? And interestingly, if we ask why, there's a lot of different answers. It's multi-layered. One of the things we know about God is that he was testing Abraham's faith. It tells us that in the scriptures, that he wanted to know that Abraham trusted him. Now that God had given him the son, did he trust the son or did he trust the giver of the son? And so he continues to give the son back, okay? Now, here's the deal, though. That's not the only thing that's going on. He's in this land of Canaan. And you know who they worship in this land of Canaan? They worship all sorts of Baals. Baals, okay, and Baals are the gods that they worshipped. But there was one Baal that was this god called Moloch. And Moloch is a scary, scary, scary worship scene, okay? He's a false god, so he's not real, but it's the whole concept of it is very real in the sense that it was demonically sculpted and pitched to people and people bought it hook, line, and sinker that there was some god named Moloch when all there was was a demon whispering that there was a god named Moloch. And what they had to do was if they wanted their crops to grow and if they wanted success all around them, then they had to worship this god. And you know what this god required of them was the sacrifice of their kids. So they had to sacrifice their kids on an altar. Literally, they had to sacrifice the kids. This is child sacrifice is what, the, what it required. Now, you know, what's interesting is that I, I've since learned something. There's this thing that, that I've learned recently that was really cool. Um, there's a, a man named Andy Crouch. Um, he's the editor of Christianity Today. And uh, he serves as special counsel for Netzer, the network of leaders that we uh, run out of here. And the, uh, he's coming on... Uh, April 27th, I'm going to be speaking here on a Saturday night. Really urge you to come. It'd be great. Uh, it's going to be a, a very cool time. But he was talking to us at one point about injustice and about idolatry. And he said, every time that there's an idol, you worship an idol, you worship a false god, you think that that thing, obviously the thing's going to lead you astray. What the worship is, is that we think there's an easy way to get what we want. And the promise is always at the beginning from the idol. I will give you this for almost nothing, the first one's free, okay? The first one's free, and I'll give you all of this for almost nothing. If you will just bow down and worship me, if you will just receive this from me, here, here's your, here's your gift, you know? But by the end, we realize that it ultimately gives us nothing, and it takes everything from us. But here's the thing about, about idolatry. When we worship a false god, it's not just that it takes me and my life, what idolatry actually always requires of me is the life of my children. Let me explain. So, for instance, if I think that in order to have a solid identity and to feel good about myself, in order to be happy, I need to throw myself at work, and I become a workaholic. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my whole life to just doing extra work, making sure that I'm totally kicking tail so that I can feel good about what it is that I'm accomplishing. What does that require? It requires the sacrifice of my family. 
is what it requires. You know? Any struggle that we have, again, all of us have addictions. We all have things that we serve. We all have false idols. And when we go after those things, initially they promise greatness and require almost nothing, but in the end they require our children and they kill us. You know? And that's the way it works. That's the way idolatry works. And here, in this land, they had served the God of Moloch who said, sacrifice your kids to me and I will give you whatever. And of course, none of it actually works out in the end. But this is what happens. He takes Abraham and he puts him on this land and he says, Abraham, give me your son and put him up here and raise the knife. And then he stops and he says, uh-uh, I'm not Moloch. I'm not requiring your son of you. That's not what I'm requiring. Let me show you how this will work. There's sacrificial atonement and the ram was provided. And ultimately God says, I will die. Instead of your son being sacrificed so that you can be satisfied, instead I, the father, will sacrifice myself in the form of God, the son, on behalf of my kids, you. So it's the dad taking the hit for the kids. Okay? And he's saying, I got this. I will take the sacrifice. You will be set free. I do not require the sacrifice of my grandchildren on behalf of me. Instead, I give my life to see you thrive. And that's the picture of God. Okay? This is beautiful, beautiful picture that God gives. And instead of having Abraham sacrifice, he says, I will provide the sacrifice. And Jesus becomes the sacrifice, which is the first 11 chapters of Romans. And it says, in view of the mercy, which means in view of the sacrifice that is already taken place. In other words, no matter what I do with my life, if I give my life entirely to the service of God, if I sell everything I have and I run to the mission field and I go and give every ounce of myself into doing hardcore kingdom work, God will not be impressed. I will not atone for my sins. It will do nothing to justify me in the eyes of God because the mercy has already been achieved. And he doesn't want me to do sacrifice in order to satisfy the anger of God. He wants me to sacrifice in view of the mercy that is already in place. So what's the sacrifice about? Well, there's different kinds of sacrifice. There's not only atoning sacrifices, there's also like thank offerings, okay? And these are like, when God has done something so good to me, I want to praise him. I want to give him glory. When I have been loved so deeply by another person, I want to extend back to them. I want to engage deeper into this relationship. I want to bless back. And what God's saying is, oh, you can bless back. There there is so much that you can bless back with. Feel free. Jump in. The more of yourself you give, the more it will come in line with this mercy that I've given to you. And you will find this synergistic, synergistic, beautiful relationship that's really working. So in view of my mercy, the new life I've given you, offer back everything you want to offer back. And it will be gorgeous. It will be amazing. Okay, so that's what he's saying. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now he goes on to explain what that looks like. Verse 2. How do you offer your body as a living sacrifice? So here it is, verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. So in other words, whatever, however the world works is opposite. It, it, it doesn't fit with living sacrifice mentality. However the world works, there's a different kind of mentality that I'm looking for. How do I offer myself as a living sacrifice? Okay, this is what it says. 
Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewing of your mind. Our mind has to change. And then it says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How many of you have ever wanted, um, thought it would be really cool if you just had a phone that was by you, that was like, you know, you could dial 1-800-GOD, what is your plan? You know, 1-800, what is your plan? You know, whatever. And you just, you just call it and say, like, God, all right, I'm stuck in this situation. Can you, you know, fill me in? What do you want me to do? You know, just like going to the general in the army, you know, like get the satellite phone. General, which, give us our orders, you know. And it could, don't you wish sometimes you could just do that with God and say, all right, God, what's your plan? And that you'd hear on the other end God just saying, this is it, you know. The funny thing is we actually do have that a whole lot better. We actually have living God inside of us. He's inside of us. We don't have to pick up a phone. We have to stop, get quiet, slow down, and listen to what already lives inside of us. And it's not my own inner voice. It's the voice of God inside of me that is illuminated and illuminates the pages of Scripture, the words that He's already spoken to me. And between the written word and the inner word of His Spirit testifying, I have spirit and I have truth, and it is all here to communicate to me. The problem is this. The problem is not that he's not speaking or that he's not present. He's closer than a 1-800 number. The problem is that I'm conflicted because I still often am stuck in the pattern of this world. And therefore, I can't hear very clearly unless my mind is renewed and transformed. And God is in the process of washing my mind with the water of the Word so that I begin to think differently. I begin to see differently. I begin to understand differently. And the more He changes my mindset, the more I can begin to hear His will for me, His good and perfect will. Just those words. Listen to this. It says, then you will be able to know, you'll be able to test and approve in any given situation. I'll be able to look and say, huh, is that God's will? And then I'll be able to look at that. Yes, that is God's will. And listen to what it says. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Hear those words? Those are really, really important words. Because if we are not given over to God, and our hearts and our minds are not in the right place, God's will does not look good and pleasing. It looks painful. It looks tough. Living sacrifice? How much of me does he want? That doesn't sound fun at all. Living sacrifice? That sounds terrible. But if I'm entering into a relationship with God and I'm experiencing the fullness of it, I start to realize his will's an awesome thing. And the more, every time I go according to his will, things just get better and better and better. And it doesn't mean that all my circumstances get better, but it does mean that I have way more full of joy and peace than I ever have been. And all the lies that told me my circumstances define my joy and peace all of a sudden are kind of disappearing because I'm realizing that being in this will of God is what it's all about. So I need him to transform my mind and renew my mind, get me to a place where I can actually hear from, you know, and where he can guide my steps. Okay, so then he's saying we need to have our minds transformed. So what is the pattern of this world that I need to no longer think within? And what is the place I go to? Well, he, he explains that, verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, and here it is, here's the pattern of this world, excuse me, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Okay? The pattern of this world is what? It's all about who? Me. I know what's best for my life, and it's on me to get it. Okay? 
I'm the only one who knows what's best for me. No one else actually knows what's good for me. I'm the one who knows, and no one else is actually going to get it for me. I'm going to have to figure out how to get it. So that means I'm self-interested, and it means I'm self-reliant. Okay, that's what it means. The pattern of this world is self-interest, self-reliance. That's the pattern of this world. Do not any longer conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which starts with not thinking of myself any more highly than I ought to. It doesn't mean that I should loathe myself or despise myself. It just means I shouldn't think higher than I ought. I should think okay about myself. Man, I'm in, I'm in the image of God. Like, I'm a child of the living God. That's an awesome thing. It doesn't mean I should hate myself. It just means that I shouldn't think of myself higher than I ought. I'm not God. It means I don't know what's best for my life. And it means that I'm not the one who can accomplish all the things that need to happen in my life. I shouldn't think of myself more highly than I ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Sober judgment. That in the right mind, I'm looking and saying, this is what I am in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given me. In other words, to the extent that I trust God, to the extent that I believe in God, to the extent of the faith that I have now, I'm saying, you know what? Life is no longer about me anymore. The spirit that lives within me is the spirit of God. And my life will be given over to submission to God. That I believe that instead of finding my way for my life, that it goes way better if I figure out his way for my life. And the more I submit myself to that, the more I am going to find what it is that I'm created for and how I best function. I'm going to find the joy of the Lord. I'm going to know his will for my life. He moves on, and, and that, that means something else. It means that just as each one of us, uh, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body. Each member belongs to all the others. And so now if I believe that I don't call the shots for my life. I don't know what's best for my life. He's the author and the finisher, the beginning and the end. He's the one who sees the big picture. He's the one who created me. If I want to figure that out, now I am in pursuit of his will for my life. I realize I don't figure that out by looking at me. I figure it out by looking at him and by his body here on earth, which is also you. So all of a sudden, if I am now invested more in trying to figure out how I can bless Paul and Beth, or Ryan and Kristen, like if I, or Jane, if, I, if I'm figuring out how am I going to better the body of Christ, I start to discover who I am. Because God's will for my life is not found just in looking at me. It's found in looking at us because this is the body of Christ. And just as when we get married, if I want my marriage to go well, if I want my life to, if I want my life to go well and I'm married, what should I focus on? My wife. If I focus on my wife, happy wife, happy life, right? And this is how it works, right? And so the more I focus on my wife, the more that there's joy in the environment. And it's actually furthering things, right? And, that's, and, and we could talk about that manipulation, that's manipulation or whatever, and it's still self-interested, and it can be. I mean, even if you're completely self-interested, it's still a good principle. If, you want to, if it's still all about you, still care about the other person, and it'll be better for you. But when it's all about Jesus, we understand that we are made as a part of a broader body, and that the only way that we function according to the way that God has designed for us is not first by figuring out my little part of the body. It's by figuring out what the mind wants, what the heart wants, and it's the mind of Christ and the heart of Jesus, and I'm a part of a bigger body, so my focus has to first be on Christ, then be on others, and then finally be on me. If you were here at Love Feast, uh, uh, Dave Willauer reminded us of that old phrase, and maybe you used to sing the song, uh, about joy, Jesus, then others, then you. 
spelled, that's, what, that's how joy is spelled, Jesus, then others, then you, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, you. And that that's the picture of joy in our lives, you know, that as our focus is on Christ, this is, he's the head, he's the one calling the shots, he's the one who has the best for me, he's the dad, you know, he's, he's got, he's got a, he can see what it is that I need. I focus on others, I focus on the rest of the, the group, and then I eventually focus on me, and this is where joy is found. Okay, so I want you to look at uh, just a couple passages here. Um, and, and this will give us the perspective so we can uh, close it up. First, I want to look in Acts chapter 2. This is why I realized that um, before we even look at Acts chapter 2, I just, I, getting back to this volunteer thought, this word volunteer, this is why I think volunteer is a tough term. What's, tomor- what's tomorrow? Tax day. Tomorrow's tax day. And so, uh, you know, we got to pay taxes. You know, some of you have already paid your taxes. Some are really, really rushing to pay the taxes, to fill out your forms. I mean, hopefully you've been paying taxes all throughout the year. It makes it a lot easier that way. Um, But, you know, tomorrow is tax day. Jesus talked about taxes, didn't he? And he was asked about taxes and whether or not we should pay taxes. Caesar, by the way, was not, um, he was was not a Christian, okay? (laughs) Caesar was not a Christian, and Rome was not a Christian government at all. Okay, and so whether or not they agreed with Caesar was not part of the equation. Okay, part of the equation was the understanding that this whole government thing was so messed up, and and that's why they were frustrated because what it meant for them to honor God and walk with God, they felt the tension between this oppression they felt from the government. This wasn't just a lack of congruence. This was opposition to their faith. You know, and so and but but he's asked. They try to trap him. You know and. What do they say? They say, should we, pay, should we pay the taxes? And he says, give me the coin. And he takes out the coin and he says, whose face is on the coin? Whose image is on the coin? And they say, Caesar. And then he says, well, give it to him then. You know, it's his. So give it to him. What are you worried about? It's his, not yours. He's the one who made it. Give it to him. But I earned it. No, he made it. Give it to him. And then give to God what's God's. And whose image is God on? Me. I'm created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God. And, of course, the implication is is that we belong to God. We can give our money to Caesar, but we give our lives to God. And that's the implication. Now, here's the thing. The reason I bring that up is because when the government takes my money or when I give my money to the government, there's a required tax that I pay. There's other ways that we give our money that isn't required the same way. You know, if there's a school that I think is a a school that's really worthwhile. I went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. I went there tuition-free, okay? Why? Because there's a whole bunch of people who gave tons of money to Moody Bible Institute because they believed it was a school worth giving to. And so all the students go tuition-free to Moody Bible Institute. Pretty sweet. Everyone's in line now, you know? And, And so you can go to Moody Bible Institute without paying any money because someone gave to that. When they give to that, what do we call it when people give to an organization like that? Charitable giving, okay? And you can write that off in your taxes, okay? And so uh, that, there's, a, there's a whole other level that where the government's saying, that's not really your money. I mean, you took that money and you gave it away to someone else, so we're not going to tax you on that because that's not even really your money. You know, you just gave that to someone else. Or, and, and so there's, that's, there's a deduction there. And, but that's a choice of to give what is mine freely to some organization is called charitable giving. Charitable giving isn't something we just do with our money. It's also something that we do with our time, right? So if there's an organization that we believe in and we want to help them out, and so we go to help them out and we 
give some of our time? What is that called? Volunteering. Okay? It's volunteering. So this is, how, this, is, this is the train of thought. I want you to think with me for a second. Train of thought is this. Does my work owe me money for the time that I gave to them? Depends on who you ask. Do I owe this charity the money that I'm giving to them? Kind of depends on who we ask. Let me explain what I'm saying. Is that I deserve nothing. Everything that I have is from Christ. He is saying that if I give the taxes to Caesar because they belong to Caesar, that's fine. Give them to him. But my entirety of my life belongs to God. And therefore, all of my time and all of my money belongs to Jesus. Whether that's time that I spend at work, whether that's money I spend on my family, it's still all Christ's money. And it's still all Christ's time. And the thing about volunteering is volunteering says, okay, here's what's mine, and I will give some of what's mine to this place that I believe in because they need some of it. And the reason why I realized that this is an abrasive thought to me is because that's saying that what I didn't give actually is still mine. So I, I tithe to the church this year. Awesome. Like that's what God asked us to do. You know, it's great. So then the rest of the money is mine. Not really. The rest of the money is still God's. And he still wants to direct everything that we do with it. You know? And the thing is, is that's why I think that when I give my time, this is where I'm taking my free time and I'm giving it to God or giving it to the church. And then I think that the rest of my time is mine. And then I'm not fully a living sacrifice. Because I have this feeling I run this part of my life and then I give these parts of my life to God and it kind of compartmentalizes my life like that. And it's a dangerous mentality because if we do that, then what ends up happening is is we feel this tension in our soul about like how much does God require of me, you know? So now, like, is that enough that I gave to the church? Did I volunteer enough time doing this? And there's there's always this question about how much does God require of me? And there's this rich young ruler who asked the exact same question one time. And he says, you know, how much do I have to do to inherit eternal life, Jesus? You know? And Jesus says, oh, obey these commands, treat each other. And he's like, yeah, 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 I've done all of that. And then Jesus is like, all right, tough guy, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the guy hangs his head and walks away sad. Why? Because he's like, Jesus wants me to sell everything I have, the level of sacrifice that he expects from me in order to have eternal life is crazy. No, 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 no. The sacrifice is already paid. Jesus won't be impressed by this guy selling everything he has and giving it to the poor. He won't be in better standing because of God. He just hasn't been in view of God's mercy. He hasn't submitted himself to the new plan. He hasn't stepped into the new way with Jesus where he should have just laughed in that moment and said, hey, you're the king, you're the master, whatever you want. Is that seriously what you want me to do with my money right now, Jesus? Like just go and give it away? And maybe Jesus would have said, yeah. Or maybe Jesus would have said like, I don't know, I just wanted to see if you'd raise the knife like when I told Abraham to sacrifice his son and he did. And maybe I wanted to see if you actually would give your money away if I told you to, you know? Because the thing is, is we can say it's all hyperbole and he's just saying this or he's just saying that. But the real question is, is my life still my own or does it belong to Jesus? And if it belongs to Jesus, then maybe I should actually be open to the fact that may, he may ask me to sell everything and give it to the poor. Or he may tell me to not do that. 
But it's not my decision to make because it's not my money. And I've never given enough to church or to my family or to work to make God happy. Jesus gave enough on a cross to make God happy. My job isn't to make God happy anymore. Jesus already has that all wrapped up, you know? He likes me. The real question is, will I submit to the fact that the Spirit lives in me and the lamp that gives me life deep inside my spirit is asking the outside of me to come into submission to this new life. And it's saying, man, life will flow so smooth if the inside and the outside become congruent. I'm not a volunteer. I'm a servant of the Most High God. I'm a child of the Living One. And I'm a part of the body of Christ. You know, uh, Evan just turned eight, and uh, something started happening when this kid was turning eight. I didn't really put it together, the age thing. I just saw that um, we were seeing changes, okay? And, like, I, he started acting differently. He was thinking differently. He was, like, you know, and I'd walk over. We'd be, just the other day, I was walking into church. Um, we were walking up here for the men's fellowship breakfast. I should have known better. I went to grab his hand walking in, or not the breakfast, the dinner. And I went to grab his hand, and he's like, get your hand off me. You know? <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. It's like that now, you know? And he's, like, becoming more independent at this point. And he can think conceptually, and he can hold on to concepts that he couldn't hold on to before. And he's really changing, you know, and I was looking at him like man this guy like he's just acting different now He's really growing up and jen and I had a conversation about it I went and like did a little research and i'm like, oh, yeah, eight years old is a big time Like I didn't realize that this is a major transition in in little boys lives And uh, so we we have this system that I kind of stole from a buddy of mine where there's kind of these like Moments these like rites of passage moments with the with the boys where um, like when he hits eight years old now I he, he's no longer just a little boy. He's a page. And when he hits 12, he's going to be a squire. And when he hits 18, he can be a knight, you know? And, uh, and, and, then we, and each time, there, it, it's, there's these moments where we sit down and we have these conversations, okay? And, and I just had to make up the first one. I had to figure this out quick, you know? I'm like, okay, what does this guy need to know? Like, things are changing, you know? So we go over to Burger King in Pottstown, and we sit across the table from each other, and we have a talk, you know? And I'm like, you know, there's some things you're probably going to need to know some information you don't have. And here's some new information that you didn't have before. Now you know, you know. And then there's also some freedom that I think you probably need at this point that we haven't given you before with some other things. So we, that he had permission to do some things that he didn't have before. I said, but there's also responsibilities. There's things that are required of you at this point. You're maturing. There's some chores around the house that you need to do. Wednesday's trash day. Tuesday, you're going to go and get all the little trash bags out of the different little trash cans and you're going to put them in the big trash can. Okay, that's your job. And you're going to get more freedom and you're going to get more information because you're maturing. Is he a volunteer for our family? Uh Uh-uh. He is our family. This is his identity. His last name is Deering. This is who he is. I don't volunteer at church. For me, the only reason I receive a check from church is because this is where all my time goes and you guys are willing to help take care of my family when I spend all my time doing this. You know? For you, as you spend time that's not at work and not at home and you're volunteering here, this isn't about volunteering. This isn't about giving of what is ours to God or to a church. This is about the fact that we are a family. We are a family together. 
And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which means my time, my talents, my money, all of that stuff is invested into the kingdom of God because dad is the provider and we are together and we are a family. And the more I mature in the faith, the more I get invested into the family. And we don't call that volunteerism as if the rest of our lives are independent from the family. We call that doing our chores, you know? That's what we call it, doing our chores. We're invested. We're a part of this thing. We're in it. And the older we get, the less it becomes chores and the more it becomes just loving our family. You know? Loving our family. That's what it is. And the other analogy that he uses is the body. And the thing about the body that's so amazing is there's only one identity at all with the body. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. It's all there is. An elbow without a rest of the body is nothing. It's no one. You know, our identity is in Christ. It's this beautiful thing. So here's where we're going to close this. There's this one last thought is this. You know what the problem with living sacrifices is? You might have heard this before. Is that living sacrifices can crawl off the altar. And so we can give ourselves to Christ. You know, we call this thing the altar table. And I can lay myself on here and say, I don't want to live any longer. You've regenerated me. I know that you've created me for a purpose. 1129 in he, in uh, uh, Romans 11.29 says that God's gifts and His call, they're irrevocable. They can't change. He already has a destiny for my life and He's already given me the goods to fulfill what it is that I'm supposed to do. It's irrevocable. It can't change. I want to give myself fully to your plan for my life and flow in the fullness of what you have. But then all of a sudden, you know, this morning, I don't feel like doing that. I, I got I lost it. I Man, I, I still just struggle. The tension inside of our lives is tough. And this week, man, I had a moment where I was so mad at someone because they treated me so inappropriately in a certain spot. And my pride rose up in me. And all of a sudden, this Tim that I thought was dead, all of a sudden, where did he come from? How does he have an ego? And how does he have pride? I thought he was dead on the altar of Christ. You know, and he rose up and I found in my heart I was not in a good spot. And I was not in line with Christ. And we know what Christ says happens even when you hate someone inside of you. It's as if you committed murder on the outside. It's a, it's a good thing. It's the same thing. And so I, I, you know, I was disconnected in that moment. It wasn't good. I wasn't flowing with Christ. I wasn't a living sacrifice. And that... You know who that hurts the most, of course, is me. You know? And, and so the problem with the living sacrifice is we get off the altar. And, and the problem with me not being able to discern the will of God is there's still the tension that I want life for me. I want to just tithe. I want to just volunteer. I want to just give a little bit and then say the rest is mine. But it's not. My time at work, my time with my family, all my resources, man, he's the king. He's dad. He's the head of the body and the heart. And he needs to guide everything I do. It's not just the church time that's the God time. It's all the time that's the God time. I'm a living sacrifice. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. So what we're going to do closing up here is uh, we're going to pray. And uh, there's a few different people I want to pray for because um, when it comes to the way we serve, we all serve and we're all part of this. But there's some people who are being called to serve in some very unique ways right now. And so there's a few different people that, um, that I want us to pray for. First of all, you know, we have our, we, we're fortunate to still have our overseas missionaries with us here, the colleges. And uh, they're in a tough spot right now, the colleges, as far as 
not understanding what's going on. They've been really struggling to get visas to get back to Indonesia. The Indonesian government is uh, really uh, changing the game as far as how you get visas. It looks like they might be going back real soon on a tourist visa, which only gets them a few months there. And Paul won't be able to fly the airplanes or do the mechanic work or any of that because he doesn't have a work visa. Um, so it's, it's just not an ideal situation. They also have uh, their, their house that they've invested a ton of time and energy into in order to get effective for their family. Um, it's been sold to another landlord, and he's kind of wanting to get rid of them and do some other stuff with the house. So it'd be, an, it'd be really tough for these guys. I know Paul, um, last week when I talked to him, was kind of freaking out about that a little bit and just being like, man, this is going to be really tough. And what's more is that um, their closest friends over there, who is a pilot who flies with Paul, and uh, the boys, they have kids the same age, and uh, it's uh, Dave and Joy, um, Forney, they're missionaries over there. They also, Dave also played soccer with Paul and I at Moody. Uh, they're relocating to Uganda, and they're going to be flying in Uganda. So they're losing their close friends. They're losing their house. They can't get the visa. It's craziness, you know. But they're at a spot where they're just trying to say, hey, we, we're servants of the Most High God. Whatever it is he has, he calls the shots. We don't call the shots, but we want to stand behind them because what we do as we are servants, as we are a body, is when there's a part of it that's in need, if that part's not functioning well, then, you know, if it's not, if it's not working, all hands on deck, let's get to that part and help it work well. So we're going to pray for them. Another thing, uh, you know, Michael, Flora, she blesses us with some of her gifts here regularly. Uh, um, the, one of the ways she serves is by singing here on the praise team. But, uh, but like any of us, there's m- many aspects to how we serve the Lord. We serve in our jobs, in our homes, and, and we serve here at church. And uh, Michael uh, serves in her job. She works for a pharmaceutical company. And, you know, we've prayed many a times, a number of times, that, that in situations at work that she'd be able to honor God and glorify God and what she does there. But also now with her vacation, um, there's going to be some, something happening right now. Josh just talked about it at the beginning of the service. She's going on a missions trip. She's going down to El Salvador to work with a friend of hers down there who has a mission. It's kind of a, it's uh, for women, a shelter for women and that type of thing. And there's uh, resources that the Journey kids are sending with her, clothing and things like that for the kids. So we're going to pray for her as well as she uh, takes her vacation time and goes and invests into that. Uh, you probably don't know the DeJesus is yet. They're here with us today. And uh, Andy and I have gotten to be uh, close friends recently. And uh, he and Lucy are here with us. They've been here a couple times. And uh, they've been to some of the Netzer events. And I asked them if they wanted prayer today. Because the way that I've gotten to know them recently, you know Cutillo's Restaurant in Pottstown? Um, on the lower floor of Cutillo's Restaurant on Monday nights, there's a homeless dinner that's served there. And it's a really, really great ministry, powerful ministry. They bus in people from uh, across Pottstown who can't, uh, you know, don't have the means to, to feed themselves. They don't have the, the resources, and so they bust people in. And in the lower floor of Cutillas, there's people from a number of different churches at this point who come and bring all sorts of food in and serve a potluck. And it's this great moment, and afterwards, there's, uh, they're working through the Gospel of John right now, kind of teaching through the Gospel of John, reading through the Gospel of John, singing hymns together, and that type of thing. It's a great ministry. For the last couple of months, I've been taking my family over there and serving as a part of that. If that's something you're interested in serving and being a part of, see the DeJesus is after this, or come talk to me, and we'll get you plugged in with that. But, uh, you know, they're kind of figure, trying to figure out right now even which local body God has them connected to. And so we're going to pray over them as well and over that ministry um, and, and just serve, you know, the, the beauty of that ministry. And then we're going to pray for all of us at Parker Ford Church who are uh, part of God's army, 
and God's family. We could call it a volunteer organization. That would be inappropriate, I think, in general. We're not a volunteer organization. We're a family, and we're a body, the body of Christ and the family of God. And, and so we're going to pray for the family of God and the body of Christ. I've asked a few people to come and lead us through those prayer times as we close out. So um, I'm going to ask that um, if, uh, first of all, if our prayers would come up here. Can you bring a mic with you, please, Daryl? Um, you guys can come up. Those of you who I asked to pray. Said, are you here too? Yeah, okay. And, um, and then also those who we just said we're praying for, if you would come up here as well, colleges, the Jesus, Michael, if you'd come up here, I'd appreciate it.